On May the 11th, 1958, Sylvia Plath noted in her journal that she had hit upon a new title for her book of poems, Full Fathom Five. Well aware that every last scrap of Shakespeare had been harvested by fellow authors engaged in the same enterprise, she wrote, It seems to me dozens of books must have this title, but I can't offhand remember any. Full Fathom Five relates more richly to my life and imagery than anything else I've dreamed up. It has the background of the tempest, the association of the sea, which is a central metaphor for my childhood, my poems, and the artist's subconscious. To the father image, relating to my own father, the buried male muse and god-creator risen to be my mate in Ted. To the sea father, Neptune, and the pearls and coral highly wrought to art. Pearls, sea-changed from the ubiquitous grit of sorrow and dull routine. When Plath's book finally appeared two years later, it bore the name The Colossus, but she held on to Full Fathom Five as the title of what she called one of my best and curiously moving poems about my father, sea god, Muse. Hello and welcome to Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'll be talking about the poem Full Fathom Five by Sylvia Plath. And if the podcast seems even more powerful than ever, it is because this poem is crossing the streams of two favourite topics here at Eerie This, Sylvia Plath and Shakespeare. If you haven't heard it already, my last episode was on The Tempest, the play that gave Plath her title for today's poem. Full Fathom Five, thy father lies, sings Ariel. Of his bones a coral made. Those are pearls that were his eyes, nothing of him that doth fade, but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. Now, Platt's poem has a number of intriguing connections to this song of Ariel's. The imagery of sunken fathers is only the beginning. Let's start with that phrase, sea change. In the play, Ariel addresses this song to the shipwrecked prince, Ferdinand, who reacts, horrified, this ditty does remember my drowned father. In fact, Alonso is not drowned or even dead, and the shipwreck that Ferdinand presumes his father perished in happened only hours ago, so it is impossible that his bones can now be of coral made, his eyes replaced with pearls. That sea change that has supposedly transformed him into something rich and strange cannot then simply be the natural effects of a body being underwater, but something more mysterious and powerful, perhaps the magic or art of Prospero. The play coined that phrase, sea change, meaning a dramatic, holistic transformation, and in the year this poem was written, Sylvia Plath was trying to bring about her own sea change, to gather her life around the work that was most important to her. 1958, she promised herself, the year I stop teaching and start writing. In Full Fathom Five, written between 22nd of May and 11th of June that year, we don't just find Plath visited across the seas of time by her dead father, but documenting the attempt to coax her own drowned imagination to the surface. I'll be following my usual routine for these solo poetry episodes, reading through the poem in full once before going through again section by section and offering some insights and critical commentary. Before I begin, I would just like to say, if you enjoy my work and would like to support the podcast, you can do so in a number of ways, leaving a positive review wherever you listen, subscribing if you're watching on YouTube, and if you really enjoy it, you can even buy me a coffee using the coffee link in the episode description box below. 
Or if you want something tangible in return for your hard-earned cash, not merely the knowledge that you have wisely made an ally of Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast, uh, you can purchase some merchandise featuring our artist artwork. Uh, There's some on screen now if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening to the audio, then the Sylvia Plath design will be on your podcast player. Uh, We've got a wide range of these designs, all created by my frankly disgustingly talented sister, Elle. Uh, They're available on t-shirts, hoodies and mugs. And again, that link is in the episode description box below. Now, enough of this mercenary hawking of wares. Here is Full Fathom 5 by Sylvia Plath in full. Old man, you surface seldom. Then you come in with the tides coming, when seas wash cold, foam-capped, white hair, white beard, far-flung, a dragnet rising, falling, as waves crest and trough. Miles long extend the radial sheaves of your spread hair, in which wrinkling skeins, knotted, caught, survives the old myth of origins unimaginable. You float near as keeled ice mountains of the north, to be steered clear of, not fathomed. All obscurity starts with a danger. Your dangers are many. I cannot look much, but your form suffers some strange injury and seems to die. So vapours ravel to clearness on the dawn sea. The muddy rumours of your burial move me to half-believe. Your reappearance proves rumours shallow. For the archaic, trenched lines of your grained face shed time in runnels. Ages beat like rains on the unbeaten channels of the ocean. Such sage humour and endurance are whirlpools to make away with the groundwork of the earth and the sky's ridgepole. Waist down you may wind one labyrinthine tangle to root deep among knuckles, shin bones, skulls, inscrutable below shoulders, not once seen by any man who kept his head. You defy questions, you defy other godhood. I walk dry on your kingdom's border, exiled to no good. Your shelled bed I remember. Father, this thick air is murderous. I would breathe water. Okay, so the poem is divided into 15 stanzas, each three lines long. You might have been able to hear that the thought units are not contained to a line or stanza. They carry on into the stanza following. This rolling, overlapping enjambement moves the poem like waves. Plath writes in her last line, I would breathe water, and the poem almost has, inhaling and exhaling in these big tidal breaths. What this enjambement means for us, though, is as I go through the poem now section by section, I won't be stopping at the stanza breaks, as that will mean stopping in the middle of a thought or a sentence, uh, so there will be a little bit of shingling back and forth. So let's go from the beginning. Old man, you surface seldom, then you come in with the tides coming when the seas wash cold foam capped. Let's start with the old man. Note that it is not yet father. He is only called that towards the end. Before the waters are crowded with a flotsam of imagery, we are presented with something that sounds either like um, an old sea god rising from the depths or like a dead body, an old man bobbing in the sea, drawn in uh, land by the tide. Otto Plath had died in 1940 when Sylvia was only seven. At the time, the Plaths were living on the east coast of the United States in Winthrop, Massachusetts. The effect of the scenery of those early years on Plath's writing was enormous. Towards the end of her life, Plath wrote, I sometimes think my vision of the sea is the clearest thing I own. Specifically, this was the sea of her childhood. Ted Hughes writes in birthday letters, You needed the sea, the jewel in the head, 
your flashing thunderclap miles of Norset surf. Norset was a beach further south in New England, but still facing those rolling hills of the Atlantic, a beach that Devon simply could not compete with. Woolacombe Sands failed you, writes Hughes. This was the reverse of dazzling Norset, the flip of a coin, the flip of an ocean fallen dream face down. In the same year Plath wrote Full Fathom Five, she finally accomplished one of her dreams, having a poem published in The New Yorker. Muscle Hunter at Rock Harbour also features the New England coastline, and its publication left Plath riding high on what she called the crest of a creative wave. That jewel in the head wasn't merely nostalgia for the scenery of her childhood. As Peter J. Lowe writes, Plath's poetic treatment of seascapes revealed something of the deeper psychological rupture that her art explored and in part sought to heal. Plath herself writes in Ocean 1212W, And this is how it stiffens my vision of that seaside childhood. My father died, we moved inland. Whereon those nine first years of my life sealed themselves off like a ship in a bottle. Beautiful, inaccessible, obsolete, a fine, white-flying myth. There had actually been two years between her father dying and the family's move inland, but the two events became inseparably linked for Plath. As Kylie Berger says, the loss of both her father and later the loss of the place where she remembered him the most joyfully proved to be impactful on Plath. It was like she buried him twice, once in the ground and then in the sea. Moving on with the poem, Foam-capped, white hair, white beard, far-flung a dragnet, rising, falling as waves crest and trough. The first thing I want to mention here is how cleverly Plath keeps this old man sounding homely and domestic. Even though we are beginning to see something rich and strange, something like a titan surfacing, it also sounds quite pathetically like an old man roused. You surface seldom is the kind of thing you say to someone who doesn't get up much, doesn't get out of bed or leave their room. I think of Prospero working away in his cell. Foam-capped, obviously foam of the sea, but also sounding a little bit like a nightcap. And perhaps this is just me, but I can't get rid of the image of bathtub foam forming accidental beards and moustaches. What we can't miss in white hair, white bearded, is the vision of an archetypal patriarch, the Christian god, Zeus, or perhaps in this case, Neptune. Up he rises, not unlike the chilly god of Platt's poem Ouija, who rises to the glass from his black fathoms. Already, this cannot be merely a dead father. It is also Platt's sea god muse, that inaccessible white flying myth. Then we have his white beard like a dragnet, one of those nets which, if you can picture, is sort of actually beard-shaped, dragging along a river or weighted and dredging the seabed. Importantly, scooping up everything. I think what we're beginning to hear now is that anxiety quite common to writers, that they've absorbed all kinds of junk, that their nose is off, that they're not being targeted in their fishing for ideas, they're just dragging up everything all at once. Miles long extend the radial sheaves of your spread hair, in which wrinkling skein's knotted court survives, the old myth of origins unimaginable. Okay, a lot happens here. So first of all, there's no question now of whether or not the old man has a mythical dimension. Miles long extends his hair, that dragnet picking up all the flotsam of the ocean. Radial sheaves of his spread hair. You can just picture, can't you? Soaked hair resting on the surface and then being dragged upwards. Also, I think this subtly reinforces the godliness of the old man's image. Radial, we might think of the way painters conceive holy figures with halos or 
radial light around their heads. So in the wrinkling skeins of this hair, knotted court survives the old myth of origins unimaginable. Something is caught and presumably struggling in the skeins of this hair. I think Plath is here building on the imagery of this hair catching everything that floats by and specifying now that she is addressing fiction. It begins with skeins, not just any old way to describe hair. Skeins means a measure of thread used by weavers, long associated with storytelling. For this reason, we talk of stories being well-woven and complement an entertaining story as being a good yarn. In Greek mythology, the three fates literally determine the story of lives by spinning, measuring, and cutting thread. In Ovid's Metamorphoses, Philomela, after being raped and having her tongue cut out, can only tell her story by weaving it. If you listen to my episode on Gawain and the Green Knight, you'll remember us talking about the bob and wheel stanza form, itself reflecting weaving, the long, alliterative, unrhymed line, rolling on like a wheel, capped by the rhymed quatrain, the thread coiling round the turning bob. To bring this back to Sylvia Plath, I think we start to see the old man and his hair as a colossal muse, with all the ancient stories caught and struggling in his beard and hair. Plath can sense them, but she can't untangle them, put them to good use. She knows the theory, she's done enough reading to be able to teach literature, but for some reason her own writing isn't coming out the way that she wants. You might remember from the Colossus, the narrator tries to dredge the silt from the Colossus's throat, and here again we have a narrator faced with an immense but uncommunicative figure. You float near as keeled ice mountains of the north, to be steered clear of, not fathomed. So the old man is drawing close to what we don't know yet, but presumably land. Keeled ice mountains, icebergs that have keeled away from the flow. Not fathomed, not understood, but also possessing depths not fathomed of. Icebergs are famous for being larger beneath the surface than above. And that will be mirrored in the old man himself later in the poem. Icebergs are also obstacles. Plath may be expressing here how she is creatively blocked. In such moments she felt numb and eroded. The hell I am wallowing, she writes in her journals. Nerves paralysed, action nullified, time experience, the colossal wave sweeping tidal over me, drowning, drowning. On with the poem. All obscurity starts with a danger. Your dangers are many. I cannot look much, but your form suffers some strange injury and seems to die. What does it mean that the sea god or father has suffered some strange injury down there fathoms below? We haven't heard the word father yet, but even without it, I think this section provokes the fear of lost loved ones fading in the memory, the picture of them in the mind's eye becoming damaged over time. Isn't that what Ariel torments Ferdinand with? Not just the news that his father is dead, but that he is unrecognisable. Here too it is as if a dead father has been submerged in time, not thought of, and on one of his seldom surfaces the memory is shown to be strangely injured. But as we've said already, this poem has more than one layer of meaning. It is not just a poem about Otto and the New England seaside of Plath's childhood. So how does this section make sense read another way with the idea of the sea god muse Plath mentions in that journal entry I began with? Muses typically descend from the heavens and deliver to the poet divine inspiration, pennies from heaven. But Plath's muse is a sea god. Instead, he rises from the depths with pearls from the murky fathoms. That line, I cannot look much, indicates a degree of self-recrimination. I read it as Plath's narrator disgusted at herself, 
at having sent her muse to the depths and failed to call him to the surface sooner, now being confronted with the strange injuries he has incurred as, res as a result from being too long submerged. This whole process we might imagine as representative of Plath, feeling she has been too long unproductively thinking, musing on obscurities, failing to wield her imagination in a satisfactory way. In so doing, she has allowed her muse to become waterlogged and overloaded with detritus, even endangered it by leaving it too long in obscurity. The word form encourages us that this is Plath talking about her own writing. It is her form that is being disfigured. Brianna Philbrick has written of Full Fathom Five that as an elegy about an old man floating on a cold sea, this poem is often construed to be a confessional poem about her dead father. However, I believe that the old man is more symbolic, as is the Colossus, not representing her father, but personifying her imagination or lack thereof. As we've said already, the Colossus shares with Full Fathom Five a figure that is monumental, unreachable by communication, and both are also gendered male. Stephen Axelrod has written, I believe that Plath transformed her conflict with her father's memory into a larger argument with cultural memory, with the literary tradition's colossal list of books, with the canonical writers she thought of as god-eyed, and with the male superiors who neglected, misunderstood, and overshadowed her. So not only the influence of long-dead writers, but contemporaries, her newly famous husband among them, and the poets the couple were now meeting, like T.S. Eliot. Eliot, from a Bostonian family, was also inspired by the same coastline as Plath, but as Peter J. Lowe has written, the fundamental difference between Plath's seascapes and those of Eliot is that Plath's vision is informed by a deep-seated sense of loss, that, even as it idealises the past, both fosters a desire to regain that past and frustrates attempts to do so. Back to Full Fathom 5, cannot look much, but your form suffers some strange injury and seems to die. So vapours ravel to clearness on the dawn sea. The muddy rumours of your burial move me to half-believe. Your reappearance proves rumours shallow. Ravel is a strange word. As a noun, it can mean a clump or tangle of thread. But as a verb, it means the same as its supposed opposite, unravel. So we have vapours wisping out to nothingness on the surface of the sea. Coming off the back of the form that seems to suffer, I see this as aborted drafts, bad ideas, poems that go nowhere, mist off the brain. With the muddy rumours of burial, I'm reminded of Prospero's books, which are the source of his art. I'll break my staff, he promises, bury it certain fathoms in the earth, and deeper than did ever plummet sound, I'll drown my book. But does he? There is no one to hold Prospero to account on this. We can only take his word for it. For the archaic, trenchard lines of your grained face shed time in runnels. Ages beat like rains on the unbeaten channels of the ocean. What we're sensing here is the infinite, the ocean brunting whole ages as if they were only rains, water off the sea god's grained face. Archaic trenchard lines does sound a bit writerly again, doesn't it? Like the archaic trenchard lines of a long-dead author. Time is wasting itself in trying to change either the ocean or the sea god. There is a sense of futility here. It is as if Plath is being frustrated in her hope for a sea change. As she wrote in her journals, Why does one not learn to love and live with the boring daily bread that is good for one, that is comfortable, convenient and available? Like brave new world, ha! So one can suffer and become Shakespeare? Ironically, I suffer and do not become Shakespeare. 
The Tempest was a particular favourite of Plath's from an early age. Carl Rollison writes in American Isis of how Aurelia Plath, after taking Sylvia to a production of The Tempest in Boston in 1945, said that her daughter had been completely transported to the magic island of Prospero, talking about the play on the train home. As we've seen, Plath nearly gave a line from The Tempest, Full Fathom Five, to her first collection of poems. The line is originally sung by Ariel, whose name, of course, is shared with Plath's second collection. And in the Colossus, do we not find something of a Caliban as a narrator? Earthy, alone, without language, toiling in the service of a lofty higher power. Her husband, the shamanic Hughes, who performed hypnosis on Plath and attempted to speak to the dead, modelled himself as a kind of Prospero. The elemental triangle formed by these three characters was important to both of them. As Pamela A. Smith writes, With and through Ted Hughes, a celebrant witch doctor, Plath was finding that one must learn the id or recognise his own Caliban before he can catch sight of Ariel. Such sage humour and durance are whirlpools to make away with the groundwork of the earth and the sky's ridgepole. Between the earthy and the ethereal lies the shifting sea, blurring the boundaries of these elements. It is almost as if, between the worlds of Caliban and Ariel, we have this middle zone. The elements were on Plath's mind as she first emptied the netful of imagery containing this poem in her journals. A Hans Andersen book cover opens its worlds. The Snow Queen, blue-white as ice, flies in a sleigh above her snow-thick air. Our hearts are ice, always sludge, offal, shit against palaces of diamond. That man could dream God and heaven, how mud labours. The white-bearded grandfather drowning in the sea surge. The warm, slow, sticky rollers. The terror of paper crackling and expanding before the burnt-out black grate. Whence these images, these dreams? And the fairy tale connotations will continue in the next section. Waste down you may wind, one labyrinthine tangle, to root deep among knuckles, shin bones, skulls. Inscrutable, below shoulders, not once seen by any man who kept his head. You defy questions. You defy other godhood. Okay, so here we have the most direct address of godhood, this old man as god, perhaps Neptune, god of the sea. Neptune is often depicted from the waist up, emerging from his ocean realm. Hugh said of Plath's sea poems of this time that a lot of the imagery came from her reading of Jacques Cousteau's books on oceanic exploration, but they were also influenced by fairy tales. As a child, Plath read Matthew Arnold's poem The Forsaken Merman, in which the titular merman king has been forsaken by the human Margaret that he had lived with under the sea. The merman calls to his children, asking when it was that his Margaret forsook him, called away by the bells of her church on land and leaving the timeless happiness they shared in his ocean kingdom. Carl Rollison writes that the merman's voice is the poet's and expresses the enchantment of words that Margaret has also forsaken, but that Sylvia, a sea girl, swooned over, saying they made her want to cry, but also made her very happy. Arnold's poem imagines Margaret back among her people now, as the spindle drops from her hand and the whizzing wheel stands still. She steals to the window and looks at the sand and over the sand at the sea. Later in life, Plath connected physical maturity's pains with the decision of the mermaid to become mortal. 
writing in her journals of a day wiped out by the cramps and drug-stitched stupor of my first day of the curse, as it is so aptly called. Do animals in heat bleed, feel pain? Or is it that sedentary blue-stockinged ladies have come so far from the beast state that they must pay by hurt, as the little mermaid had to pay when she traded her fishtail for a girl's white legs? Recalling a time at the seaside when she was just learning to creep, Plath said she made straight for the sea, lifted out of harm's way just before she fell in. Peter J. Lowe writes that Plath wonders whether she would have become a mermaid if she had succeeded in being taken up by the sea, but the more disquieting reality is she would have been killed. And Plath did, later, attempt to drown herself. Well, I tried drowning, she wrote in an unsent letter, but that didn't work. Somehow the urge to life, mere physical life, is damn strong. In The Bell Jar, Esther Greenwood reflects that I thought drowning must be the kindest way to die, and burning the worst. When Esther does try to kill herself, it couldn't be in drier, grubbier conditions, in the secret, earth-bottomed crevice underneath her mother's house. Much like the crawl space Plath herself was found in after her own suicide attempt. After the sleeping pills begin to take their effect, Esther says, The silence drew off, bearing the pebbles and shells and all the tatty wreckage of my life. Then, at the rim of vision, it gathered itself, and in one sweeping tide, rushed me to sleep. Anne Stevenson says of this, not to be defeated, Sylvia had drowned after all. Plath acknowledges in Full Fathom 5 that it may go either way, that the god is inscrutable. Waste down you may wind, one labyrinthine tangle, to root deep among knuckles, shinbones, skulls. Beneath the surface there may be the lost kingdom, the enchanted world of words. Or the merman's twisting tale may lead only to death rooted in the bones of the drowned. Final bit of the poem now. I walk dry on your kingdom's border, exiled to no good. Your shelled bed I remember. Father, this thick air is murderous. I would breathe water. The narrator is on dry land, they reveal, bringing those rolling tidal stanzas back to a dry stop. Your kingdom's border sounding very much like Margaret of Arnold's poem walking on the coastline, remembering the sea king she once lived with. Father, this thick air is murderous, I would breathe water. This last line captures a theme of Platt's writing we've talked about since the first episode on the Colossus, her interest in life in death and death in life imagery. As the culminating line of this poem, it unites both readings, that of the dead remembered father and the sea god muse. Living here is a death, I would breathe water. In other words, I would drown myself. But looked at another way, here I am stifled and need to be in touch with my muse. I would breathe water and therefore talk in my own language. Whichever transformation it is, death or creative rebirth, it will be a sea change, a metamorphosis into something rich and strange. Those are pearls that were his eyes, sings Ariel. Plath had a particular way of talking about the labouring and suffering that went into making art, as hard-won pearls wrought from the ubiquitous grit of sorrow and dull routine. When trying to jog ideas in her journal, she counsels herself to recreate life lived. That is renewed life, a grit in the eye of God, and is wept forth a hundred years and a day hence, a globed, iridescent pearl world. Pearls recur in Plath's poems. There's a mouthful of them in Paralytic, 
And there's the question in Stopped Dead. Where do you stash your life? Is it a penny, a pearl, your soul, your soul? The forsaken underwater kingdom of Matthew Arnold's poem is literally paved with pearl. The pearl-eyed father of Ariel's song embodies that contrast that so fascinated Plath. A spectacle of death, yet one richly and strangely alive. In an earlier poem, Two Lovers in a Beachcomber by the Real Sea from 1955, Plath anticipates much of the imagery we've talked about in today's poem. There is the comparison of a stalled imagination and the boarded-up blue views of the sea. There are thoughts tangled in a maze of mermaid hair. There is a lone beachcomber among a rack of shells probing fractured Venus with a stick. And then there is this final stanza. No sea change decks the sunken shank of bone that chucks in backtrack of the wave. Though the mind like an oyster labours on and on, a grain of sand is all we have. After three more years of labouring, this particular grain of sand became the pearl of a poem that is Full Fathom Five. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed. If you have and you haven't listened to the other episodes I've done on Sylvia Plath, there's one with Carl Rollison about the life of Plath, one with uh, Dr. Gail Crowther about the bell jar, one with uh, Ailish Mulholland on the birthday present, and one with Dr. Amanda Golden on the Colossus. There's also plenty more coming out soon, so do subscribe and look out for those. Thank you all for listening. Um, I've been Ash, your host, and until next time, happy reading. For a sea change into something rich and strange. Sea nymphs hourly ring his knell. Hark! Now I hear them. The ditty does remember my drowned father. <laughs>